0: Good morning. This is Talking Animals on WMNF. I'm Duncan Strauss, and my guest today is Dr. Jane Goodall, the ethologist, activist, and conservationist. Dr. Goodall first rose to international attention in the wake of her pioneering work in the 1960s, studying chimpanzees in Gombe, Tanzania. UN Messenger of Peace and founder of the Jane Goodall Institute, Dr. Goodall has long been devoted to encouraging and empowering young people, often through the Institute's Roots and Shoots Youth Program, created in 1991. Dr. Goodall was in Tampa last week for two events, including a lecture at the Tampa Theater aimed at students and educators. Tampa appears to hold additional ongoing significance within the Goodall realm. It's the future home of a Roots and Shoots USA base camp, what's described in media materials as a, quote, emerging model in the U.S. to support local grassroots efforts to amplify the impact of the program, end quote. I initially interviewed Dr. Goodall on this show in 2009, and apparently she was so knocked out by talking to me that she only waited 14 years to agree to another conversation. So, while Dr. Goodall was in Tampa last week, we did record an interview discussing a number of topics, including the thinking behind selecting Tampa as the site of a Roots and Shoots USA base camp, and a good deal more. I'll play back that interview with Dr. Goodall in just a moment here on Talking Animals on WMNF. Meanwhile, a programming note. On the next two Wednesdays, I will not be here. But the fabulous Bev Capshaw will be hosting the show in my absence. I know she's worked hard on putting together some wonderful programs, including an interview next Wednesday, April 12th, with Ed Sherwood of the Tampa Bay Estuary Program and highlighting merciful project on April 19th. She'll be in great hands for the next two weeks, and I'll be back here on April 26th with a new edition of Ask the Trainer with Glenn Hatchell. Also, coming up later in today's program, I'll talk with Howard Baskin, advisory, uh, advisory board chairman of the Big Cat Rescue, which recently announced plans to forge an alliance with Turpentine Creek Wildlife Refuge, a sanctuary in Eureka Springs, Arkansas, housing mostly big cats. The key elements of this alliance involve moving most of the big cats rescue cats to Turpentine Creek and eventually selling the Tampa property. Howard Baskin, who issued the statement announcing this collaboration and how it's intended to proceed, will join me later in the show to discuss the broad strokes of this plan. Right now, though, let's hear my interview with Dr. Goodall. Recorded last Tuesday when she was in Tampa, this is Dr. Jane Goodall on Talking Animals on WNF. So we're recording this interview. First of all, let me just say welcome back to Talking Animals, Dr. Jane Goodall. Thank you so much for joining us today. I appreciate it. Thank
1: you for inviting me.
0: Of course, of course. And we're recording this interview a day before you're scheduled to give a talk geared for students and educators at the Tampa Theater. Now, of course, you haven't conducted this one yet, but I know you do these kinds of sessions not infrequently. So I'd be very curious to hear your impressions of young people when it comes to their attitudes about animals and the environment.
1: Well, <clears throat> that's my main you know, thing that keeps me going. Yeah. I started the Jane Goodall Institute's Roots and Shoots program back in 1991 with 12 high school students in Tanzania. Now it's in 68 countries growing, members from kindergarten through university. And the change is I've seen young people's attitudes changing because they're being exposed to the fact that animals are sentient beings, which was first brought to the world as a result of films about the chimpanzees. You know, because I was told back in the, in the early, no, yeah, the early 1960s, that we were the only beings on the planet with personalities, the only beings with minds capable of problem solving, and the only beings with emotions. But I think almost anybody who shared their life meaningfully with any animal, dog, cat, horse, bird knows that that's not true.
0: Yeah, for sure. So what are some of the ways that in the ensuing time since you founded Roots and Shoots there back in 91, these days, what are some ways that are tangible bits of evidence the way the evolution of those viewpoints by those school kids has really markedly changed?
1: Well, I think, you know, at the beginning, certainly when I was young, You didn't have all these nature clubs, you didn't have young people wanting to change the planet. Um, There wasn't much need when I was young, that we knew of anyway. Uh, Forests still stretched across Africa, Asia, Australia, those forests are now disappearing. And because of the media, through the media, young people are getting to understand what's going on. And it's their future that's at stake. So. There's a greater urgency. There's more willingness of young people to roll up their sleeves and take action.
0: So I would guess then that your vision originally for when you founded Roots & Shoots in 91 and it started uh, clearly very small has been realized in ways that may even have exceeded your hopes for what would come of the organization.
1: Well, I think I have the hope. I've always been <laughs> I've always had hope. I've always been a dream. I've always felt if you aim for the stars, you might reach the moon. If you aim for the moon, you might reach the top of Everest. So let's aim for the stars. I I began Roots & Shoots because even back then, late 1980s, I was traveling around the world and I was meeting so many young people, high school, university, who'd lost hope. And they were either angry depressed or mostly just apathetic, not seeming to care. So I, I would, you know, I said to them, you know, why do you feel like this? Well, you've compromised our future and there's nothing we can do about it. So, yes, we've compromised their future. In fact, we've been stealing it, but it's not too late. I firmly believe there's a window of time. And if we all get together, we can slow down climate change and loss of biodiversity and change people's attitudes towards animals and, and the environment, help people understand we're part of and not separate from the rest of the natural world. And... So, you know, the, the young people get it and they are prepared to roll up their sleeves and take action.
0: And I guess if they are still concerned, what kind of counsel do you offer in terms of measures they might take to help mitigate the, the seems like, rapidly advancing climate change?
1: Well, it depends on their age, their country, their uh, economic status, you know, routine is very flexible. And it's, it, it, we, because everything in nature is interrelated, we decided from the beginning, me and these 12 students in Tanzania, okay, our main message is every individual makes a difference every single day, and we can choose what difference we make. And secondly, because of the interrelatedness, Every group would choose three projects. They would choose it themselves, unless they're very young when they need guidance, but older ones, um, a project to help people, a project to help animals, a project healthy environment because it is all so interrelated
0: yeah it makes me think when you talk about the this first group of 12 all these years later to what extent are some or maybe more than some of that 12 still involved and still are you still in touch with and what what kind of roles do they play now having started that way as young kids
1: well if i take the original members not just the 12 but as we, we grew quite quickly mm-hmm. many of those From the early 1990s, they're now in decision-making positions, and they seem to hold on particularly to two values. One, respect. Two, compassion. So it's respect for people, for people of other cultures, other religions, other countries, other languages, um, people with different colored skin and so on. Yeah. Compassion for each other. And for animals
0: and really the roots and shoots i think could be pointed to, to to really have cultivated those things in those young kids who are now decision makers and leaders of some kind
1: that's right that's right we, we we've certainly created a number of very courageous and honest leaders already
0: and we're creating more all the time that's great wow so beyond the two major events you're doing uh, in tampa the area holds additional ongoing significance in the tampa is the future location of a roots and shoots usa base camp so clearly i think that gives us some bragging rights hey dr goodall chose tampa to become a roots and shoots usa base camp what's your city got going for it we can sort of be a little bit insufferable about that but this overlooks the fact that at least i don't know so far exactly what a roots and shoots usa base camp is is or what it will do can you fill me in on that
1: well we had base camps way back when and then uh, the the jane Goodall institute at that time uh, it's completely you know we've changed and evolved they felt they didn't have enough resources and they closed them all down in this case here in tampa the base camp uh, idea was revived by joe Tattlebaum, whom i met first in china and did roots and shoots in in china and so what you need is a person to spearheaded who understands who knows what roots and shoots is passionate and then you gradually involve uh, teachers or sometimes parents to help spread the word and of course some funding is necessary because if you do it a big event at a school, it's going to cost some money. But the idea is that locally that money will be raised so it doesn't all hinge on the central office because we couldn't cope with the whole of America providing funds for every school. Right. And so each
0: education is kind of responsible for their own fundraising to carry out their activities and events.
1: That's right. And, you know, to ensure that the activities and events, and in some cases curricula, are on, on you know, on target and yeah. we don't go flying off into all sorts of different areas that aren't part of the, the original
0: philosophy. Right. Stick with kind of the, the, the basic agenda and sensibility and proceed from there. Yeah. So I'd be, I'd be curious, just given the kind of reputation that Florida has and c- keeps developing, uh, what kind of qualms did you or, or Joe or any other part of the team have about placing a Roots and Shoots USA base camp in a state where clearly at least the governor and some of his policies increasingly seem to reflect intolerance for the LGBTQ community, for immigrants, for just others generally just seems like that's be hard to reconcile a little bit with the Jane Goodall ethos.
1: It's exactly why we need to bring our ethos into this state. That's the exact the exact you know it's pointless if you just work with people who think the same as you do. For sure. Really really important to to have discussions. I know when I first uh, went wanted to do something about chimpanzee medical research because the conditions were horrendous. I mean, it was the most awful time, almost the worst things I've been through. And going into those labs and seeing these close relatives of ours in five foot by five foot cages, it was horrible. Mm. So... I wanted to try and do something, sat down with the the top people of NIH who were involved in medical research with animals and talked to them. I didn't, I didn't point a finger at them. I didn't tell them they were horrible people. I just showed them slides of the chimps as they are in nature. And I could see people turning inwards and thinking about what was in there compared to what I was showing them. And I actually said to them, I imagine you're all caring and compassionate people and that you probably feel much as I do about what's going on in there. And they could hardly say they weren't caring and compassionate.
0: <laughs> yeah, it'd be a weird denial to make, I guess. Yeah, yeah, we're so, not caring and compassionate. No, we're not. Yeah.
1: But because I sat down and talked with them and we actually planned a meeting, which happened, yeah. found the rights people wouldn't talk to me. How would you sit down with those evil people? And I said, How can you expect change if you don't talk to people?
0: Yeah. So it sounds like in some ways, precisely because of some of the issues surrounding Florida and its leadership, that was one of the very reasons for actually setting a base camp here.
1: That's right. And this is why I, as much as possible, I talk in places where, well, where the situation is, as you said.
0: Yeah, it makes sense. So you kind of touched on the having started the study of, of chimps in Gombe and how that was an important part of your dialogue with people that were keeping them in horrible circumstances. I mean, I think a pretty commonly understood element of the Jane Goodall narrative is that you began in 1960 there about studying chimps in Gombe, Tanzania. But I think a far less commonly known part of the story is that this research on wild chimps continues today, constituting, I guess, the longest running wild chimpanzee study in the wild are there some notable recent or fairly recent findings that you'd like to mention that have still sprung from that ongoing study?
1: Well, you know, first of all, I think it's one of the three longest term studies of any wild animal ever in the world.
0: Oh, wow, That's great.
1: And so basically what we're able to do now Because of, you know, some modern technology like DNA analysis from fecal samples, uh, we're able to follow down through the uh, genealogies. And we can start asking questions like, you know, how much of this behavior seems to be inherited and genetic in origin and how much of it seems to be environment like the age-old nature-nurture controversy, Mm -hmm. beginning getting to see patterns like that. We're seeing the introduction of new tool using, so the start of a new culture. Uh, We're seeing strange behavior that we've never seen before.
0: For example?
1: For example, um, a male attacking a female, taking her infant, uh, running off with it, and another a uh, male rescuing the infant, but it had already been killed, but mm. take back to the mother. Uh, behavior that we simply don't understand. Very, very strange behavior.
0: And how long ago did that behavior first get recognized?
1: Oh, it, this is just very recent. This is like a couple of months ago.
0: Oh, my goodness. Okay, I see. So it'll take a while to try to sort through, seeing how often it happens, if it's just an anomaly and so on.
1: Very often it's an individual It's not the whole, it's not common to chimpanzees as a whole. It's this one individual. So now we know, you know, about his antecedents. And is there anything back there that would explain such extraordinary behavior? These are the kind of fascinating puzzles. And we have a great team of researchers at Gombe.
0: And also one of the virtues of having such a long-standing study that you can go back and say, mm-hmm. well, what, what, what this chimp did this, that seems so odd and out of character. What are his relatives and antecedents? Anything odd that we didn't necessarily remark on then, but we should have maybe flagged, so.
1: It also, you know, I was told when I went to Cambridge University back in the early sixties, that anecdotes were just to be frowned upon. Well, you can't pay any attention to that. This is just an anecdote, meaning, it's a behavior seen once in one individual and mm. uh, it's still a scientific fact that that individual did it and because i always felt that a collection of anecdotes tells you a real lot about what's going on and because of the long term nature, we can see, well, it seemed to be a one-off, but we've seen it again, and we've seen it again, and we've seen it again. So collecting anecdotes can tell you so
0: much. Yeah, well, like you say, if you start to string some of those together, suddenly you've got something that's much more meaningful in terms of drawing a conclusion. Yep. So, I've always,
1: oh, always had problems with scientists who said, well, it was just you just saw it once, so that you, you can't use it, it's not meaningful data, you've got to see it lots of times replicated before you can even talk about it. And to me, that's not true. I mean, if a chimp does something highly intelligent, but you've only seen it once or only in that chimp, it gives you an idea of the what the species capable of.
0: Yeah, that's what the possibilities are are hinted at in that first one and it has to be that first one to get you to focus on that so if anything it triggers some of the more important research I would think.
1: Right, absolutely, you can then start looking.
0: Yeah. So when's the last time that you had a hankering to venture back to Gombe or, the, or that you were back there?
1: Go back twice a year but not to do research. Just to be there to, to um, talk with the staff to get the most recent information. A lot of it comes from our Tanzanian field staff, and fortunately women are beginning to join that that little group. And we have storytelling sessions, stuff that they don't always get into their report, because, you know, they haven't got time, but sharing some of these stories. And they all get excited. So I started that last year, and now we've had several of these storytelling uh, events. Yeah, I get to hear the recent stuff. I get to meet the people. And all around Gombe, because, you know, when I realized that all the trees around the national park had gone, I realized that unless we help the local people find ways of living without destroying their environment, because they were in very poor communities, we started our Takari program. So now they've understood that protecting the environment isn't just for wildlife. It's for their future, that they need the forest. So all the chimpanzees outside the national park are now being protected by the local communities. This is really important, I think, not just for our research, but all wildlife research, to have the community involved. It can be the same in the U.S.
0: Yeah, no, if they're not part of it, they can't have any kind of stake and they can't be concerned about what's happening next and what the outcome is and all those things, right? This is Talking Animals on WNF. I'm Duncan Strauss. My guest is Dr. Jane Goodall, ethologist, activist, and conservationist, first noted for studying chimpanzees in Gombe, Tanzania, that we're discussing at the moment. This interview was recorded last Tuesday when Dr. Goodall was in Tampa for two events. So Dr. Goodall, speaking of traveling around a bit, after a break imposed by the pandemic, you period have resumed a fairly serious travel schedule. Amidst your travels, how often do you get a chance to commune with nature or be amongst animals apart from things like the the tracks to Gombe that you mentioned?
1: Well unfortunately not that often because <laughs> we've got twenty seven Jane Goodall Institutes, roots and shoots in sixty-eight countries. And so everywhere I go, you know, I'm wanted for this and this and this. They also usually want me to help fundraise, you know, do some okay. event, bring money to the to the organisation. Uh, but they do try to give me even even like a few hours to go into a little bit of nearby nature by a river, look at some uh, animal rescue, like you know breeding programs. So I I've, I've been able to to fit in. A fair amount, but not nearly enough. So I have to go in my own mind back into Gombe. That's what I do.
0: Yeah. Well, especially after that COVID imposed hiatus and your always busy travel schedule. I mean, how, how do you really feel about traveling now? I mean, at this point, I'm, I guess I'm wondering what you get from all the travel. I mean, I understand what we get from it. I heard Jane Goodall speak. I met Jane Goodall. In this case, I get to interview Jane Goodall and so on. But I really wonder what the Jane Goodall part of that equation now reaps from all that activity and all that travel all these years later.
1: Well, I think the number of people who've written to me and said that because they came to a lecture or read a book or something, they they had given up. But now they, they're promising to do their bit. Um, I get letters saying that people have been inspired. I get letters from children uh, saying that they want to help animals and they understand animals better. So because I care so passionately about the environment and about the future, future of my own great-grandchildren's children, you know, um, then this is why I keep doing it, because I know it's making a difference, because I'm told all the time that it's made a difference. Otherwise, I wouldn't do it.
0: And there must be now really multiple generations that have had that kind of felt that kind of impact from your work and your message. And I mean, just last week when I was interviewing on this show, who's been at the Cornell Lab of Ornithology for 20 some odd years. We were talking about her history and how she was on an academic path, and she made a reference, which I'm sure you hear all the time, and so have I, about when she was studying her birds and had her doctorate, working on her doctorate, that she was sort of starting to feel like a Jane Goodall type person, and she, you know, she veered off from a path of academia to to go to work for the the Cornell Lab of Ornithology, but I mean... Those references are, I don't know how, the, if, if you're still hearing them a lot yourself directly, but I hear them from people of all different ages and all different backgrounds. And that must be inspiring and, and gratifying, still, all the, to hear that there's always.
1: Yes, it really is. I mean, the number of people who say, uh, you came to my school when I was eight or 10 or whatever, and that's why I'm doing what I do today. It's. It's, I think, almost every day. And then every airport, people come up and, and you know, I don't know. It's become, I, I I cope with it by knowing there's two Janes. There's me, the one talking to you now, mm-hmm. and then icon that's been developed by the, you know, the, the shows like this, radio programs, geographic magazines, lectures, and so on. And that's the sort of iconic Jane. So this Jane... Has real hard work keeping up with the iconic chain.
0: (laughs) Wow. That's interesting that you really view it as two separate entities.
1: I mean, this, this iconic chain, I never wanted that. But I realized early on that this could help me do what I really am passionate about, which is you know, saving the world, if you want to put it broadly.
0: No, <laughs> oh, for sure. Well, here, here for the iconic Jane, then I guess, right? Because if you hadn't made peace with that, uh, I don't know how far that this would have gone over the years.
1: Yeah, no, I used to hide from the press. I, I would never have agreed to do an interview with you. I hated it. I was shy. I just wanted to be in the forest with the chimps. Yeah. was I realized that across Africa, forests were going and chimp numbers were decreasing. That I realized, no, you owe it to them. So I emerged, and then I've learned to cope with the, or you could almost say notoriety, couldn't you?
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, again, thank, thank goodness for the other Jane Goodall, I guess, right? So yeah. When you're not on the road and there are no interviews or other obligations scheduled, what's an ideal day for you? Well,
1: an ideal day would be to be at Gombe out in the forest, by myself, in nature. That's the ideal day. Yeah. It's very rare very rare. So many people during the pandemic, I was, as I say, grounded at home in the UK. Yeah. And they said, such a relief. You can sit back and think and maybe do some writing. I've never been as busy in my whole life. I've never been as exhausted because I was doing like four Zoomed interviews or lectures a day all over the world. I didn't have one day off, one weekend off, one holiday in two years.
0: So it was actually more grueling through the pandemic when people might... Otherwise, I've thought intuitively that you'd have some bigger breaks just because you weren't on the road.
1: I feel like yesterday, traveling from wherever we were, I can't remember, somewhere back to Chicago and then getting a plane from Chicago to to here. That was a day with no lectures, no just a few phone calls from the car. That was it. So that was a day off.
0: But still involving quite a bit of activity. Yeah.
1: yeah but not like those constant Zooms.
0: Yeah, no. That sounds like the Zooms really got to you. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you doing this one. I have just another moment or two. I know we have to uh, wrap up soon. One of the things I think I read somewhere that you have a whiskey every night, which I think is a great ritual. Now, is there a way for someone to ever join you in that ritual? Like, like for example, a radio host? I'm just thinking off the top of my head.
1: Well, the the way it began was because my mother couldn't drink wine and she didn't like water, um, but she loved a little tot of whiskey, yeah. and so. When I began this traveling, uh, we said, okay, it's seven o'clock, not not the actual seven in real time, but seven o'clock for her, seven o'clock for me, we'll raise a glass and toast each other. And so that became a sort of ritual and other people wanted to join in. Um, and we also drank a little toast to those who preceded us. We said up in the clouds, the cloud contingent, And so every night at 7, there are people all over the world um, drinking a toast to each other, to their deceased loved ones, to their parents, to me, and it's really become a ritual. But the other thing, and this is true, uh, opera singers, folk song singers, uh, a man who mic'd up at a huge music festival, he said to me, Jane, 30% of all the singers I mic up want a little tot of whiskey for their voice before they go on stage. Sometimes I cannot get through a lecture because my voice got so overused. Mm. Doing, and whiskey, does it, it. I think it tightens your vocal cords. It's medicinally approved.
0: Yeah, I like that. I think there's a lot of people who would like to say, I heard Dr. Goodall say this is medicinally approved, so... Uh. Cheers, belly up, right? Bottoms up, yeah.
1: Bottoms up, not not belly up. That's something.
0: <laughs> yeah. Belly up to the bar for bottoms up. I guess I got my two things confused, but uh, that's great. Well, Dr. Goodall, I think we have kind of reached the end of our time, but I really appreciate you making the time to join us here on Talking Animals. And again, there's for people who want to look at, for more information, there's the JaneGoodall.org website and the RootsAndShoots.org website and all kinds of other social media. Locations and all kinds of other places. So, thank you so much for joining us again on Talking Animals. I really enjoyed speaking with you.
1: Well, thanks. It was great talking to you.
0: Thank you very much. My thanks again to Dr. Goodall and all the good folks at the Jane Goodall Institute. Coming up on Talking Animals, we will have the interview with Howard Baskin, the comedy corner, and more. But first, my reference to Miyoko Chu. Of The Cornell Lab of Ornithology and my conversation with Dr. Goodall reminded me of another birder and previous guest, Stephanie Seymour, who's also a gifted singer-songwriter who made a terrific bird-centric album called There Are Birds. We're going to hear a song from that now. Uh, This is Northern Lapwing from Stephanie Seymour on Talking Animals on WMNF.
2: You have to remember You have
0: Stephanie Seymour with uh, Northern Lapwing from her album There Are Birds. In a moment, I'll speak with Howard Baskin of Big Cat Rescue about their recent decision to forge an alliance with Turpentine Creek Wildlife Refuge and Sanctuary in Arkansas and that uh, alliance is going to involve Big Cat Rescue sending most of their cats uh, to uh, Turpentine Creek, ultimately aiming to sell the Tampa property and make some ships overall and kind of what they're Focuses and how they spend their time. So this represents a huge change certainly huge news and Howard basketball will join me live in a moment or two to discuss that. Right now, though, we're going to step into the comedy corner with something brand new from Mike Vecchione. He has a wonderful new special on YouTube called The Attractives and we're going to hear a short piece from it now. This is Running with the Bulls from Mike Vecchione in today's comedy corner on Talking Animals. On WMNF. During the height of the pandemic, my friend calls me up. He goes, Mike, do you want to go to Spain this year for running with the bulls? I go, isn't that a bit soon? Remember last week when the air almost killed us? Remember five days ago, we were almost murdered by the air? And now you want to go running with the bulls. Which I know that's what it's called, but that's not actually what you're going to be doing. Running with the bulls implies that the bulls have accepted you and you guys have decided to exercise together. What you're gonna be doing is running from the bulls. Do you understand the difference? Running with, running from? Everybody's so focused on pronouns now. Maybe we should take a look at some of these prepositions. That was Mike Fecchione in today's Comedy Corner with a short piece called Running with the Bulls, taken from his new YouTube special, The Attractives. Now it's time to speak with Howard Baskin of Big Cat Rescue about some significant news they recently announced. They're teaming with the sanctuary in Arkansas where they plan to send most of the Big Cat Rescue cats. There's more to the plan, of course, but let's hear from that presently uh, from Howard himself. This is Howard Baskin on Talking Animals on WF. Good morning, Howard. Good morning, Duncan. Thanks for joining us on Talking Animals. Happy to. So, obviously, I think we need to start with how the Alliance of Turpentine Creek uh, Wildlife Creek, uh, Tur- Turpentine Creek, sorry, Wildlife Refuge came about. What was the initial impetus?
3: Well, if our, our. Uh, uh, <laughs> sorry, we have always, every year when we do our strategic planning, thought in terms of what can we do to impact the most cats, and that's why for the last decade we worked on the federal bill that stops the cub petting. And, and phases out these people having tigers in backyards. And that passed in December. And that is going to, the, the number of cats needing to be rescued had declined dramatically during that decade because of the advocacy work of ourselves and others, and we could talk about that if, if you like. Uh, and so the need for rescues was declining. Our cat population had been declining as a result as they aged out. And so when we had 100 cats, the million and a half dollars in overhead that it takes to run the place was $15,000 a cat, and that was pretty reasonable. Well, at 41 cats, that's $36,000 a cat, and it just gets worse. It's just not the most efficient use of, of donor funds. In the meantime, one of the things that we've done for years is take a portion of our revenue and fund projects in the wild trying to save the cats from going extinct in the wild and we've spent about a hundred thousand dollars a year doing that the last four or five years if we merge our cat population with another sanctuary that already has that overhead covered and so the cost per cat drops back to a reasonable number and we sell the valuable property that we're sitting on we can use that money to fund many more of these projects in the wild and And I think people don't realize how close to extinction some of these cats are, particularly the smaller species that people tend not to have heard of. And Turpentine Creek is a perfect partner. They are very aligned with us philosophically. They were very active with us on a federal bill. They're sitting on 460 acres that are in a rural area. where, uh, And so not all of that is developable, but because of the terrain, but uh, a bunch of it is. And so it is it just, an, the, it's, they can build bigger enclosures there than we have here. So it's a win win win. The cats get bigger enclosures, a place that gives the same kind of care that we have. They have a fabulous cat hospital there. I mean, we're proud of ours, but I have to tell you, theirs is, is a, 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 more impressive. Uh, And it it frees us up to do more for the cats in the wild. So I'm sorry for the long answer, but there's sort of no way to do it in a sentence.
0: Yeah, no, I I appreciate that. And again, I think it's so momentous. I think people that are just hearing this or just in the last few days when you released the initial statement, uh, probably in many cases found jarring news like, wait a minute, uh, Big Cat Rescue sending its cats elsewhere? Well, uh, what about that? And, you know, especially people who've, you know, long supported and or visited uh, the Tampa Sanctuary. So, yeah, I think the the long informative answer is, is sort of critical. Um, well, one thing, just as a side note, and I want to come back to uh, Turpentine Creek, of course, um, but people who run major sanctuaries don't typically have the option to significantly switch gears, um, but... Was it because sort of the, the, this is such a hugely important piece of legislature passed um, and just that the relative to that, of course, the declining population of cats, that your thing where you thought, here is a chance, here is a, an opportunity to to make a shift that still helps the cats, both captive and in the wild, but changes our lives significantly along the way?
3: Well, let me put it to you this way. If there were a continuing need for rescues if we were in the same situation we were 10 years ago where yeah. we were getting calls for all these rescues, then given our respective ages, I'll be turning 73 soon, Carol's 62, it would be time for us to think about a transition to younger, you know, new management. Uh, Jamie would take over and we would fill in in the areas where uh, Carol and I do things that aren't her skill set. And we would we would look at, at a transition to new management, and continue to operate the sanctuary, but without new rescues coming, it doesn't make any sense to do that. So yeah. um, that's that's what triggered. It wasn't that we were sitting here looking for an out and ooh, here's an opportunity. Right. It was you know you 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 look at the landscape and say it, it wouldn't make sense. How how could I how could I call you Duncan and say I want you to come run the sanctuary and explain to you that meantime. the the need
0: for a sanctuary is declining. Right. Yeah, no, I I guess I meant more that it seemed like it was a confluence of factors, uh, you know, most notably in some ways, just the the passage of the Big Cat Safety Act, Public Safety Act, um, that kind of has literally and figuratively shifted your landscape there at Big Cat Rescue. And so therefore, um, the trend. So, so, how early in the process did you decide once you figured this was what, this is what we should do and this is what makes sense for us and our resources to be sort of directed towards? Um, was there initially a short list of sanctuaries to approach like this or was it always clearly Turpentine Creek?
3: We know the other sanctuaries very well. There are other sanctuaries that we could have comfortably worked with, but we felt that Turpentine Creek was the number one on our list. That's not to say anything negative about any of the others, but you know, we had to pick one. And they really, as we, as we made a list of criteria, they, they just checked every box.
0: Yeah. And how did, uh, how did they respond when you first presented this plan?
3: Well, I, I think they were surprised because it was nothing they had ever contemplated. Yeah. Uh, but, as they thought about it, they were enthusiastic about it. The area that they're going to be building the new enclosures, which we are we are funding the new building of the new enclosures for our CAT, and then they're also building additional capacity there that they're funding. Mm-hmm. And that is a it's a, a field uh, that is about thirteen acres that they had viewed in their future capital plans for many years as the next area for them. To develop, so it suddenly uh, it's like it dropped out of the sky that oh instead of that being years out we could do that now, so uh, they became very excited about it.
0: Yeah, it's, it's funny. I was about to ask you like in what ways did your plans for the future alter their plans for the future, and that sounds like a, a perfect example.
3: Yes. I mean, again, it's, that's a worn-out phrase, but it's kind of a win-win-win for them, for us, for the cats, for the cats in the wild. I guess that's four wins, not three.
0: Well, I think we can expand upon the uh, the phrase, and we, we've got a new new phrase on our hands. So I'd say four wins is good. But um, So let's get into a couple more uh, specifics um, about this. So how many cats uh, are currently at Big, Rat, Big Cat Rescue as we speak?
3: We have 41. Um, we'll be spend- sending 35 to them now. Frankly, a the- couple of them are really old. So six months from now, when it's time to move, you know, we may or may not have them. But right now, the plan is for 35 to move. The other six, it's one tiger who's 23, and it would be highly unlikely. For her to live another year, and you know, I think the move would be difficult. Mm. And then, and, and then, five of the small cats, mostly the, you know, the the Florida bobcats that we rescued with the hope of re-releasing, but for one reason or another, medically could not, or are very old. Um, who, uh, you know, we are, again, they may just not live that long. If they do, we'll make arrangements. For them, but we'll be keeping them for now.
0: And then, um, so there, there's uh, sounds like fairly loose, but 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 uh, approximate at least timetable for uh, how this is going to work. So the the 35 that are going to Turpentine Creek, do they go? Um, how soon does the, do the first um, group of those go?
3: what they're doing is building the large enclosures, the enclosures for the big cats, for the tigers yeah. first. And so of course construction is always a guess and and based on weather, but they they might go in the July August time frame and then they would finish up the smaller cat enclosures and they would likely go somewhere in the October time frame.
0: So if if uh, and I know there's variables here, of course, but um, if everything kind of holds to the to the basic plan, so by October, maybe November, the cats that are going, uh, the 35 of thereabouts cats that are going, will have all been moved by that time. Yes. Okay. So, and then on, on the big cat rescue end of things, so those um, six that, that remain, uh, depending on how their health and other things are, so you guys just kind of... Hang tight and stay put with those, or is there some other plan already in place um, for for the next kind of phase of big cat rescue?
3: Well, the plan would be to sell the property. Our property now is very valuable. Yeah, uh, it, you know, it's the largest what the developers call infill, I guess. Uh, you know, to get us a, a piece of property this size, that's suitable for development. Now you have to go out to uh, State Road fifty four. So to to have one in this close is very desirable. And of course, I'm inundated with inquiries about it. Yeah. But selling a property like this is not like selling your house where you sign a contract and close in 30 days. Sure. Uh, The developers have to go through a due diligence period that's three, four months, and then they have to go through rezoning. So, you know, it tends to be like an 18-month process. So even if we have a contract soon, Um, it would take 18 months, so we'll occupy the property during that time, and that gives us time to uh, see how these remaining cats do or make other arrangements for them if we need to.
0: And then uh, once that 18 months or thereabouts has passed, uh, do you guys have a thought about uh, where you'll land next?
3: I'm going to start a radio show called Talking Animals.
0: Okay, I don't think that'll be any sort of competition. I'd be happy to uh, give you some tips, and uh, and then I'll I'll I'm going to head off to uh, Turpentine Creek and uh, conduct some sort of new program there.
3: But um, well, that, that that sounds good. But what will what we will be doing, as I said, is funding these projects in the wild. And,
0: yeah, can you and, talk a little I bit about, more about that? Because that that seems Sounds great, but, I mean, uh, for some, I'm sure, hearing this, it probably sounds a bit amorphous in some ways, and so it would be great to have uh, a sense of specifics, but uh, uh, a little bit more about how that would work.
3: Yes, you're right. Uh, people don't know what that means. So let me give you examples. Uh, the big cats are predators. So where you have big cats, and when I say big cats, I'm including the the 30-odd species of small cat, many of whom people have never heard of. Yeah. Uh, and they, they are predators. So where there are indigenous people uh, living near them, the tendency is for those cats to prey on the people's livestock, chickens, goats, cattle, depending on the size of the cat. And when that happens, the tendency for the locals, you know, understandably, because this is their living, do what are called revenge killings and go out and try to kill the cat. So, there are ways to prevent that. So, for instance, one of the we have funded what are called predator-proof chicken coops in South America to protect the chickens, so the cats can't get at them, and there are no revenge killings in Africa. They build bomas around the cattle that the lions can't get to. Uh, things like that. In India, they dig what are called ground-level wells, where they just make a hole in the ground, and that, So we have funded building fences around hundreds of those wells. Other projects include um, collaring the cats to determine their territory. So, for instance, what is the jaguar's territory in South America to to assist the government in knowing what areas have to be uh, preserved and set aside for the animals and what areas don't. So yeah. many many projects like that in other areas, uh, like in Sri Lanka with the smaller cats, like the fishing cat, uh, an issue is the high you know the the number they get killed on highways, and we have that issue here with the Florida panther. So um, yeah. you know funding ways to reduce that is is one of these. So
0: Project. as you describe these things, and, there, there, and I'm sure there's many more that you didn't even have a chance to, to, to mention, but it just seems like there are a gigantic number of things that merit that kind of funding. I mean, how will you – there's probably not funding for them all necessarily, I'm guessing. So do you do some sort of investment triage kind of approach? or I mean, how do you decide which of all the things you mentioned, much less the ones you probably didn't mention – uh, based on you know how much money there would be to devote to any one of these at any given time, how how do you how do you prioritize those?
3: Well, our best resource is a man named Jim Sanderson, who is sort of a D guy when it comes to the small cats in the wild, and he tends to work with individuals or small organizations all over the world who are doing these things, and so he actually does a lot of that triage. Us to okay. the first pass through the projects. That's great, and, and then he comes to us and says, "Okay, here are the twenty that I think are most deserving, where your funding would do the most." And and many of these are projects done by you know some dedicated individual who has no funding, where a donation of anywhere from a thousand to five thousand dollars can make a huge difference for them. Yeah, it can make the difference of whether the project proceeds or not and then if they're doing a project these projects often are in phases so they do the phase they report to us many of these people are very good about sending us the reports showing us what they've accomplished and then here's what we would like to do next would you help with this and some of them we're not the sole funder there's a project right now we're funding where panthera is funding part of it and and we're funding but we're filling in the gap that wasn't funded
0: That makes sense. So there's things small and large, collaborators in some cases, solo uh, investments in some cases. So there's kind of a mix that's already presented itself
3: on the horizon. Yes, and in India, we ourselves developed a relationship with a group called the Corbett Foundation. And um, what brought them to our attention originally was that they had received a donation from the notorious doc antle not really realizing who he was oh wow and when they were informed who he was to their credit they returned the money to him and so i was so impressed with that that we then funded made up that difference for him we didn't do that till after they had done that he didn't know that was going to happen yeah and then and then we got to learn about their work and you know they send us very elaborate reports of what they're doing so like right now we are working with them on reintroducing uh, leopards to an area that they don't exist anymore in, in India. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that has an impact on the entire ecosystem, because what's happened is leopards live in the grasslands. The tigers tend to live in the more foliage areas. And so the without the apex predator, the top predator the whole ecosystem tends to decline because the apex predator controls the population of the animals that, say, eat the grass, to keep it simple. Well, if you don't have those predators, there are too many animals eating the grass, then the grass declines, and then the animals, the all of the other species that are supported, you know, the less iconic species, the insects and rodents and all of these things that make for a healthy Ecosystem, sure. they can't survive. So putting the apex predator back, and this has been proven in the areas where they've managed to repopulate the tigers, the whole ecosystem improves.
0: Wow. Well, that sounds really exciting. So, Howard, I think we have just about reached the end of our time, but this sounds really, really uh, great, and, again, I think probably puts into much better context for people who didn't have a chance to maybe read the statement or just heard that you guys were shifting gears and sending cats off to Arkansas and all kinds of things. I think we've really gotten some great explanations. So uh, thanks so much for coming on talking, and good luck with uh, these various ventures, including that new radio
3: show. Uh, My pleasure, and I think you played a very cruel trick by having me follow Jane Goodall.
0: Well, I I mean, I wasn't trying to play a trick, but uh, that's the way it worked, and you guys both had, (laughs) I think, fascinating conversations. So thanks again. All right. Thanks, Duncan. Bye bye. All right. So we have just about reached the end of today's edition of Talking Animals on WMNF Tampa. Hope you'll join Bev Capshaw next Wednesday when she hosts the show with her guest Ed Sherwood of the Tampa Bay Estuary Program. Bev will also host on April 19th speaking with Haiti Gakuna, a merciful project. And then I'll return April 26th with another edition of Ask the Trainer with our fabulous friend Glenn Hatchell. So I look forward to speaking with you then. Meanwhile... And go to TalkingAnimals.net for audio archives of every show we've ever broadcast. Apple Podcasts are available there, too, as well as on other podcast platforms. Also, links to our social media pages and more. And you can also subscribe to our newsletter to find out about our guests a couple of days beforehand and other news from the Talking Animals world. I'm Duncan Strauss. Thanks very much for listening. Have a good week. Be kind to animals. Be kind to others. Be kind to yourself. This is Talking Animals on WNF Tampa, Brandon, Clearwater Largo, Weeki Wachee, and beyond. Scott Elliott is up next. We're turning back into some great, great music. And that's right after the NPR News headlines. We'll see you in a couple weeks. Thanks so much.